Welcome to What's the Deal, our investment banking podcast on Making Sense, the hub for JP Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of What's the Deal, we'll explore the trends that are driving deal making and transforming industries today. Happy New Year and welcome to the podcast. I am Rama Varyankawal, the host for this episode. I run the Global Corporate Advisory and Sustainable Solutions team here at JP Morgan, or what we call as CAS for short. This is our first recording for the year. I think it's a great time to reflect on 2023 and to look forward to 2024 and the big themes for our clients and corporate decision makers. I'm joined here by Evan Junik, my good friend and dear partner at the Corporate Advisory and Sustainable Solutions team. Evan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rama, and a very happy new year to you and to all our listeners. Great to be back to kick off another year of podcasting with you. Fantastic. I believe the last time you spoke was, in fact, a year back at the beginning of 2023. Lots happened. So we have this annual tradition now running over a decade where we start every year with a thought piece, what used to be a short document, talking about the year in reflection and then the year ahead. So tell us a bit more about that thought piece and um, how the report is looking for this year. Yeah, thanks, Rama. So as you note, for more than a decade, the corporate finance advisory team within CAS has released a piece we've historically called the 10 striking facts to start the new year. And that report started, as you note, as, as basically a single page of basically bullets and has over time really evolved into something a lot more than that. And so this year we're presenting it as something a little bit new, same ideas, but we're calling it now the corporate compass. It's really about highlighting key themes, key trends about really what matters most to our corporate clients here in the investment bank. And so we've just released this piece in the last day or so as of this recording. And you can find the thought piece in the description to this podcast. Fantastic. I guess the fact that the report has gone from one page to many is a reflection of how the world is getting more and more complicated. And 2023 definitely was an interesting year. So I'm curious, what are the key themes that you hit on for this particular edition? Yeah, it's a great way to maybe start the conversation here to try and frame it in a high-level way. And I think there's really kind of three core components to the thought piece this year. The first one is about interest rates. We know as a general sense what's happened. But more importantly, we're now at a point where we can better understand how companies are starting to react to, how investors are starting to react to higher interest rates and the potential for higher interest rates for a lot longer than just maybe a shorter period of time, as some I think would have hoped maybe a year or 18 months ago. The second theme that really will dovetail a little bit with this interest rate theme, and we'll talk about in more detail, of course, is really the importance of scale and being large. And I think a lot of the popular press is focused on this idea of the Magnificent Seven, Magnificent Seven being sort of the seven largest companies in the S&P 500, now representing almost 30% of the market value of the entire index, a record high over certainly modern trading history. We'll talk a little bit more of that and the importance of scale and the corresponding aspects of what's driving the value of scale in the market today. And the third theme? That is really about the juxtaposition of the markets as a whole and the risks that we see in the broader market, particularly at this moment in time. And I think where we kind of sort of pull everything together in one place is that equity capital markets, investment grade debt capital markets, high yield debt capital markets, we're basically in the best place we've been in almost two years, right? And if you think about all the various risks out there, whether you're talking about geopolitical risks, rate risks, the obvious takeaway from a lot of this is, as a company, what are the things you can do today to start to de-risk some of that? To summarize what you just said, the three themes are current interest rate environment, 
how scale is being rewarded in the market, and the many prevalent risks. Let's start with interest rates. The days of zero interest rate and free money definitely seems like a long time back now. 23 saw interesting movements in the in the rate environment. The 10-year, I think, peaked close to 5%, but is back below 4%. I heard you say that the impact of rates is different on different types of companies, perhaps by size or by geography or sector. Tell us a bit more about kind of how you see that impact of where we are in, in the interest rate cycle today and what are your clients thinking about as they look forward. So maybe a few points I'd make with respect to what we're seeing in terms of the impact of interest rates. And as I said earlier, we've now starting to have data to kind of support how companies are reacting to higher interest rates. The first point is really around how they're thinking about capital allocation generally, how they're putting the marginal dollar to work. And what we've not really seen, despite the fact we've had now years of substantial value for growth perception in the market is we've not really seen a massive pickup for the typical company in terms of the amount of capital being deployed, again, by sort of the typical company in the market. What we believe one of the reasons for that to be just the higher cost of capital that most companies are incurring as a result of the higher interest rate environment. And where you see that most acutely is in the most capital intensive sectors. And I think to pick on sort of one would be the sectors associated with energy transition. Energy transition stocks have underperformed with most of those companies down anywhere from 30 to 40% through much of last year because they are capital intensive, because they are early stage in terms of the development typically of a lot of the cash flow generation capabilities of those businesses, and by extension, highly external capital dependent and are sort of being viewed accordingly by the equity capital markets. The second component of that is capital structures. And we talked a little bit about this when we chatted last year. Capital structures are more levered across U.S. firms than they've been historically. So if you go back to pre-global financial crisis, sort of the 02 to 07 timeframe, effectively the last time we were at interest rates at these levels, the typical leverage of an S&P 500 company was about one and a half times, plus or minus. And that's debt to EBITDA? That's debt to EBITDA. That's right. Typical kind of leverage metric that we'd look at. Today, that number is almost three times right? Over two and a half times. Now, interestingly, we've not actually seen that number start to come down in earnest, but what we have seen is cash levels start to build. So cash levels are up about 20% across the S&P 500 on a year-to-date basis. And based on general trends we're observing, we believe a lot of that is being driven by an anticipation of deleveraging taking place across the market, but it's basically happening in slow motion as firms basically build cash in anticipation to repay maturing debt rather than explicitly going out and paying down what is actually today very inexpensive capital because of the historic lower interest rate environments in which most of that capital was raised. Got it. Makes sense. Maybe I'll make one observation on your example around the energy transition sector. The way at least I've been thinking about it is, yes, interest rates went up, risk premiums went up. So cost of capital went up for a lot of these companies, but hopefully that's a cyclical thing. The secular trend we know is legislative support for the sector, you know, with IRA and the infrastructure bill, et cetera. Hopefully that will be the longer lasting impact. The intent of those obviously is to reduce the cost of capital. And so at least I am, for what it's worth, optimistic that 2024 will see those valuations actually um, bounce back. Makes sense. And just the last thought there around the impact is it's really around the return of capital. We talked about the investment of capital. There's also the return of capital aspect to it. And it's certainly one thing we are hearing a lot from clients today is the question about how do we think about returning capital to shareholders effectively. Dividends in particular are a hot topic for a lot of clients. 
This year, we actually saw the lowest number of dividend initiations across the market that we've seen in 15 years. That includes years like 2008 and 2020, where there's a lot of market uncertainty. A lot of that, we believe, is a result of the fact that basically the markets were trying to recalibrate the value of a dividend as a general matter, particularly in the eyes of the investor, who now has the opportunity to go out and buy, say, a money market fund with very low risk, with substantial yield versus holding a dividend-paying stock. All right. So your theme number two was around scale, right? So larger is better. Is that kind of a simple message? And you talked about the Magnificent Seven that clearly has been, along with interest rate, the story of the year. Yeah. So tell us a bit more. I mean, you know, you can cut the data many which ways. I think 60% of the S&P 500 equity return came from those seven companies, I believe, more or less. So tell us a bit more about the impact of scale, not just in the tech sector, but maybe beyond that. So a couple of observations we make, maybe starting with the Magnificent Seven and then maybe broadening out the theme to level set for the listener base. The Magnificent Seven is kind of a shorthand name for the seven largest companies currently in the S&P 500. Those companies are Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Tesla. Those companies represent effectively the largest concentration of value amongst as few as seven companies in recent recorded history. What's very interesting in our analysis, where we take this sort of a level further beyond just valuation, is that those companies represent roughly an equivalent amount of growth capital spending across the market. So not only do they represent almost 30% of value, but they represent almost 30% of CapEx and R&D across the entire market. That, I think, is a really important stat. Because what it tells you is that this is not just about sort of ethereal future value creation potential of a handful of firms. This is about firms putting real money to work in the economy in a way that I don't think we've seen in the recent past. And we tie that back to the earlier comments I made. I was sort of trying to be precise about saying the typical company has not increased CapEx and R&D. That's not to say we've not seen CapEx and R&D increase across the entire market. In fact, CapEx and R&D is up about 20% in aggregate including M&A, by the way, if you think about sort of total growth investment since 2019, two-thirds of that growth has come from just those seven companies, right? So massive concentration, not just in value, but in terms of who's putting dollars to work. And what's notable about those seven firms specifically is that they are not capital markets reliant. They are not reliant on going to the debt capital markets to fund a marginal dollar of CapEx and R&D. Every one of those seven companies has generated free cash flow after CapEx over the last 12 months. And that's a really important distinction from your typical firm across the market who now has higher leverage than they've had historically, is dealing now with higher costs of capital, higher borrowing costs, and may or may not see opportunities to the same extent as those firms, again, subject to the specifics of the industry in which they operate. But I think what we can take away from all of this, and this is where we actually see the value for growth most clearly, is that we do see the market making a clear distinction between those who have access to low cost of capital and substantial financial flexibility and those who do not. And so that we see that in a variety of different ways. We see that in the relative value of the typical company in the S&P 500 versus the S&P 600, which is basically large cap versus small cap. And we see that also in the value for growth that companies receive in terms of both being more conservatively capitalized, i.e. having less leverage on their balance sheet, and also having incremental scale, so being larger. So putting it all together, we see value of scale, we see value of conservatively capitalized balance sheets, and all of this really ties us back to the first theme, which is effectively the benefits of scale in a world where costs of capital are higher, and those who have access and more ready access to capital are the ones who are going to be able to put growth capital work and ultimately succeed in terms of their long-term growth objectives. 
Got it. So the ideal recipe for success is if you're large, but still can grow, but don't need to rely on the external markets to grow. Clearly, those seven companies have all of that, but others may not quite have that exact formula, but it doesn't mean that others can't replicate the success. Certainly at some scale, right? And we never go so far as to say to build scale for scale's sake. But I think one could say that the potential synergies associated with building scale are perhaps more substantial today than they've been in the recent past, driven by a number of factors, but one being obviously the state of interest rates. I remember you published a different piece of work where you talked about not just this idea that the tech companies especially are doing the bulk of investments in the U.S. economy for sure, but perhaps even in the global economy. But the returns on that, if you look back, may or may not be as attractive as perhaps the valuations imply. Am I remembering that right? Anything from that study that you would want to point out? I think what's interesting is when we had sort of designed that, I think we were posing the implicit question of whether or not investors would continue to support the level of capital intensity that many of these companies have embraced, given the fact that the near-term returns on many of those investments have been lackluster. And that's a little bit of a manifestation of how putting capital to work ultimately works. It often takes a lot of time for a dollar of capital to ultimately generate a strong return. What I think we can say now is that If anything, the market's actually become more supportive of a lot of that capital-intensive investment. And it seems that we continue to be in a world where, for the right opportunities, the market continues to be supportive, particularly if you can support that investment from cash flow and organically generated cash flow specifically. Got it. All right. So back to your original three themes. The third theme was around the risk. So if you look at the current state of the world, especially the U.S. economy, it does seem like a lot of it is flashing green. Risk of hard landing, most people will say, has receded quite substantially. Seems like we have been able to somehow manage a soft landing or potentially we will manage a soft landing. So given that, and you pointed out that clearly a call for action for companies, given the benign environment, take action now for success. But there are risks, right? And if you don't mind, paint a picture of how does a typical corporate put aside the Magnificent Seven? How do you prepare yourself for the risks? Yeah. It's a great question, and obviously there are nuances to the answer depending on where you are operating in the global economy. Look, we talked a lot about interest rates, and when we think about the financial implications of risk, that's where I would start. We probably agree that the market as a whole is now pricing in a soft landing, right? Whether you look at where valuations are across the market, across capital markets, or you look at what the market is anticipating in terms of Fed funds rates over the next 12 months, all of this seems to suggest that we have sort of threaded the needle here. But there's a lot of commensurate risk here, not the least of which is the state of the U.S. balance sheet. The U.S. balance sheet has grown substantially. Just to give you one stat we highlight in the piece, by 2027, the Congressional Budget Office expects we'll be spending more on net interest expense for our government debt than we do on defense spending, right? So we're going to be moving into a world where just maintaining the balance sheet of the U.S., government is going to be a significant burden. And we have benefited as a country because of the state of our currency as a reserve currency, as a natural flight to quality in terms of the dynamics we observe in terms of the relative puts and takes in terms of where rates go in periods of uncertainty or times of stress. These things have kind of naturally helped us in the past. But the universe of treasury investors is evolving. We may very well Certainly, our strategists believe that we're going to be working into a world where the marginal treasury investor is more price sensitive and is more sensitive to 
leverage on the government's balance sheet. And that's just one factor that suggests that even as we sit here today with the market believing we're in a soft landing scenario, there very well may be a lot of volatility associated with that, particularly in the treasury markets, right? We've been so focused on monetary policy. What's the Fed going to do? In many senses, fiscal policy and the sort of state of the government's finances has been sort of second order issue. That very well may shift over the next year and years beyond and create additional risks, right? That dovetails into geopolitical risks. We've got a tremendous amount of political uncertainty globally, arguably the most active year for elections in history by some measures, certainly in decades. And so all these factors are the issues we know. There's, of course, the unknown unknowns and in aggregate, I think, do present a tremendous amount of uncertainty for anyone operating in this kind of environment. We go back where we started this conversation. What is the takeaway for a firm or a company or a decision maker who's listening to this right now? The message to them is you've got to be prepared. You've got to be proactive to manage the risks that you control. And the risks you control are things like when you tap capital markets, when you're de-risking your ability or access to capital. And the screen really is flashing green in a lot of ways right now. And if you're not talking about how you're de-risking your capital plan today, you should be. Got it. So de-risk your capital plan while market's flashing green. Look for growth. Scale up in case that the risks actually materialize. Seems like a pretty reasonable action plan. Thank you, Evan. I'm sure we'll be back in a year from now talking about how surprised we are about what 2024 had in store for us. To all our clients listening, look forward to engaging with you in what I hope is a productive year in front of us. Fantastic. Thanks, Evan. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What's the Deal? If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. To stay ahead of the curve, sign up for J.P. Morgan's In Context newsletter, packed full of market views and expert insights delivered straight to you. To subscribe, just visit jpmorgan.com forward slash in hyphen context. This material was prepared by the Investment Banking Group of J.P. Morgan Securities, LLC, and not the firm's research department. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase, sale, or tender of any financial instrument.